You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 121 of the Business for Good podcast. If you've been listening to the show for a while, first, let me say thank you. But second, you probably already know that nearly all startups fail. Often, even founders who do have a successful exit under their belts have stories of entrepreneurial strikeouts before their big home run and sometimes even after their big home run. But every once in a while, there's a founder who seems to have the Midas touch who just keeps on winning. No, I'm not talking here about Elon Musk. Rather, I'm talking about Eve Potvin. The classically trained chef pioneered the plant-based meat movement, founding Eve's Veggie Cuisine in the 1980s, which was acquired for $35 million by natural foods giant Haines Celestial. One successful exit is rare, but Eve went on to then found Gardein, which brought alternative meat to an even higher height and was eventually acquired by Pinnacle Foods for $175 million. Later, that brand was acquired by ConAgra, which still owns Gardein today. Rather than resting on his laurels and retiring to the Alt-Meat Hall of Fame, which if it existed, he would certainly be in it. Today, Eve is betting that entrepreneurial lightning will strike a third time. He's just launched a new brand called Conscious Foods, that's conscious with a K, not a C, which aims to bring fish-free seafood to the masses, starting with sushi and other Japanese delights. Rather than relying on extruded plant protein isolates, the core of Gardein's products along with most other alt-meats today, Conscious is using whole vegetables like tomatoes, carrots, eggplant, and konjac as its core seafood replacers. But Conscious frozen sushi, poke balls, and onigiri don't taste like vegetable rolls. Rather, since Conscious acquired the IP of the defunct alternative seafood company Ocean Hugger Foods, the vegetables are actually prepared in such a way to give the feel and taste of products like tuna, crab, and so on. Already, they're in sprouts and whole foods in the frozen sections, and you can even get sushi made at the Whole Foods sushi counter with Conscious's fish-free fish product. In this interview, even I talk about his life, his success, his struggles along the way, and lessons he's learned during his multi-decade career seeking to replace animals in the food system with healthier, more humane, and more sustainable options. I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. I know I certainly did. I now bring you Eve Potvin. Eve, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. So nice to be here. So nice to be here. Happy Uh, Sunday. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you as well. All right. Uh, I actually had your product about an hour ago for the first time. I went to Sprouts and I purchased it and it was quite good. I, I tried two of them. One of them was like a, a kale uh, sushi and the other one was a, a tuna sushi. And they were both quite good. And I, I really appreciated it. Go on. You look like you want to say something about them. Yes, we have a kale onigiri. Onogiri, not sushi. Thank you. Onogiri. Yeah. So for the, for people who aren't familiar with what onogiri is, you want to tell them what that is? Onogiri is a snack quite popular in Japan. It's a triangle and it's stuck with different things. We have one is a kale gomai, the other one is a shiitake barbecue, Korean mm-hmm. mushroom, corn poblano, and finally a Japanese curry. So we have four different mm-hmm. versions of the onigiri. So very mm-hmm. easy. Yeah, I saw the I saw that shiitake mushroom one. And I thought about getting it. There were four different skews. I got it at Sprouts, and I bought two of the skews that were that were there. Though, and it was it was great. 
I uh, really enjoyed it. And we'll include links in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com as to where you can get all of it. But let's start from the beginning, Eve, because Conscious is the latest iteration of your very successful entrepreneurial career. But let's go back because you were not always a serially successful entrepreneur. You were a chef. What got you into being culinarily interested in, in the first place? I mean, before you started thinking about building all these companies in the plant-based space, you were like, this OG plant-based chef back then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, apparently people will have as look at yourself. You have many different career in your life. And they say, I read somewhere that people change career average three times in their life. So I studied architectural design and never complete my degree. I Realized that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So a friend of mine told me, hey, you love food. Why don't you be a chef? So I went to Culinary uh, Art Institute in Canada. And I was I, it's, I studied Nouvelle French cuisine, the healthier version of the French cuisine. And one day I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this, this for the rest of my life. So I cycled across Canada. I came from Montreal to Vancouver. And along the way, you have a lot of time to think. And I think I was always an entrepreneur. And I said, what's missing in my life? You know, healthy, convenient food. Because I can tell you when you buy it, you don't have a lot of time to cook. And there was not a lot of stuff that was uh, healthy and convenient. So when I arrived in Vancouver, I had an epiphany to create a new line of cholesterol-free convenient food. And if you want to take the cholesterol, you have to take the meat or the seafood away from it. And that's how it started. What year was this? I'm going to age myself a little bit. 1983. All right. So 1983, you were interested in cholesterol-free foods. Now, were you eating eating plant-based yourself back then? I mean, I think in like 1983, I think light life existed at that time for a few years already, but there wasn't you know, a, a broad array of, of meat alternatives available in the market in 1983. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think I, I'm, I'm mentioning one of the articles that I I was the first fresh veggie hog dog commercialized in North America. Life Life came six months after me. They came in 1985. They were doing tempeh before, but their first product of which was something that just came... We met at a show in Anaheim, and I asked him when they start, and we've agreed that it was six months after me. So I can claim that I was the first rep one All right. commercialized. So, yeah, there was very few company at the time. I always had an interest in plant-based food. I was not a vegetarian, but I think it's a good it's a good diet. And so and that's one of the reasons I launched a cuisine, my first product line. So, you know, Light Life was just doing tempeh. Were there any meat alternatives in the market? Maybe Worthington's even? Like, was, were there Worthington, any? Worthington was in the market. Place. So mm-hmm. that's why I say I was the first fresh vegetable. They had a link. They had mm-hmm. a links in, in Cannes, and they had a variety of products. I have to tell you, though, you had to be seven days advantage to eat those products because <laughs> the quality was uh, it was um, very challenging to eat if you're yeah. not you were not a hug for uh, seven days. Advantage. Right. If you didn't have God commanding you to eat it, it would be, <laughs> it'd be t- tough to tough to swallow it. Yeah, I, I tried those Worthington veggie dogs that came in the can when I became a vegetarian in 1993, and I remember thinking, you know. 
I, I'm happy just not to eat hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, Eve's Veggie Cuisine was in existence at that time, and I quickly found it. But how long were you running Eve's prior to the exit when you sold it to Haines Celestial? So Eve, I started in 1985, and we became the number one meat alternative, fresh meat alternative in North America. We were, uh, by the time I exit in 2001, we were at about, I think, 7,000 supermarket. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had, we were just fresh. So and that's the, the big difference between you know, Gardein and what I'm doing right now, it's all frozen versus fresh. Fresh brings this challenge because North America, the distance between where we produce in Vancouver to Florida is the same as Paris uh, and the dark side of Russia, uh, where they put the prisoner, where's that? Siberia. Siberia, yes. Yeah. So right. most people in Europe would say, why would you send something that far? But in America, it's so big that, you know, that's the challenge mm -hmm. transportation we have. Yeah. So you, so you're running Eve's Veggie Cuisine for 16 years prior to the exit. And back then, it's not like there was venture capital funding for these type of startups in there, in the way that there is, at least in the past few years, there has been. So did you start it with your own money? Were you, did you have any investors at all when you started the company? So I started with $5,000 of my own money. Uh, I borrowed 10000 from family and friend, and I had a, a government loan guaranteed by the bank of $25,000. So I started with $40,000. Uh, I never had a partner. My, uh, I never had a line of credit for the first four years. So needless to say, my salary was not that big. Uh, the company grew 50% per year for 13 years in a row. Wow. And, you know, if you look at the business book, they say that you can, without an injection of cash, you cannot grow that fast because your ratio don't work. Your ratio debt to equity does not work. But so I sold the business without having any partner. And, but my bankers were part, my partner eventually because they're the one financing the growth of the business. Wow. And so was it publicized what the amount of the acquisition by Han Celestial was in 2009? Yes, yes it was, uh, I think, 35 million US or something like this. And how much revenue did the company have at that time? We we were doing about 35 million. Okay. And, yeah. and what, was this a life-changing event for you? Like if, if you didn't have any partners and you didn't have that many investors, was that was the, the lion's share of that 35 million goes to you? Well, I, you know, I ended up giving a fair amount of the company to all my employees. Yes. So the, the key senior management, even if they were not officially partner, I give 5% to this person, 5%. And, and mm -hmm. so I'm always a guy that like to share for the people you don't, you know, Sir Hillary and then Hillary who climbed the Everest said, you don't climb a mountain by yourself. And uh, you don't build a company by yourself. So yeah. I'm, uh, and, and this is why I know we're going to talk about countries, but I'm very excited to say that it's a company employee owned. So mm -hmm. everybody has share in the company. Yeah. So yeah, it's like the cuisine. I was, but you know, 99% of my network was in that business. And I put 16 years, I, I paid myself $25,000 for like 12 years. Wow. Be because you know, you have, I'm not sure if you have kid, Paul, but if you don't have enough food on the table, who are you going to give it to? You're going to give it to your kid. 
And it's the same thing of business. Yeah. If there's not enough money, you're going to give it to the business. Right, exactly. Yeah. So and to answer your question, my wife and I uh, only have one dependent in our life who is canine and not not homo okay. sapiens. And okay. so we, we, we work hard to give him a better life, hopefully. But Yes, I, I I very much feel that. And in fact, the startup that I run called The Better Meat Co, it actually is not that dissimilar where all full-time employees have partial ownership of the company. And I can assure you that my salary is um, very modest compared to what it could be otherwise. So for that reason that I want the company to have a better chance of survival. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, of course, we're going to get to conscious, which is the you know the whole purpose of the, the catalyst, I should say, for this interview. But you've led such an interesting life. I just want to go through these various chapters for you from a chef to starting your own company, running it, and then having this $35 million acquisition. And then how long after that did you think, okay, I'm now getting into high moisture extrusion, I'm going to do Guardian to make even more realistic meat alternatives? So the reason, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur and I mean, we were the number one brand fresh. Everybody wants to buy, you know, Conagra, et cetera. And I was not really interested in selling pieces. But Worthington went to buy Kello. Uh, Kraft bought Boca. So all the big company were getting in. And I, we started developing moisture extrusion at East Vegetable Cuisine because I was looking for the next generation of product. And we spent over a million dollars in R&D. Extrusion is a very expensive technology, know-how, and we spent almost two years developing it, then I realized I didn't have the capital to commercialize this technology because uh, I didn't have millions of dollars to do that. So in 1999, there was a lot of small business coming into, into play. I was really afraid. I actually phoned one of my competitors and was trying to call me a copy of Gramron. And we had found the product uh, contain uh, so much pathogen. It was it was going to somebody was going to be sick because they didn't pass the right. We were pasteurizing the product. I thought you have to recall your product because it's too dangerous. And he says, "Well, you're my competitor." So finally, he did recall it. And I was afraid the same thing was going to happen to the the plant based as happened with the spinach, the lettuce. Somebody would get sick with E. coli. And for six months, nobody eat mint alternative because the quality control of those small brands was not there. So for that reason, I start looking at, I need an exit uh, to commercialize Gardein, but also to take some, you know, I had two kids by then and it's not about myself, it's about the family to have some kind of responsibility. So I sold to Ain Celestial in 2001. And in 2003, I had a non-compete for five years. I started scaling up because I, I bought I bought the I bought the technology from Mister Cuisine, uh, the extrusion, and I started scaling up in two thousand and three, but with a non compete, so just doing food service. Right, because you, my understanding is Guardian was B two B, and in fact, you were selling to Hain Celestial as well, right? For the for the beginning part of Guardian, my my recollection is that you had like an Intel inside approach where the yes. you yeah. know you had to put on the pack like something like powered by Guardian or something like yes. that on there, right? Yeah, I was selling to Star, I was selling to all the different people. The idea was going to be an Intel inside or Gore-Tex, you know, made with Guardian. 
Unfortunately, that strategy did not work because a company are very risk adverse. I remember seeing Morningstar and I showed him all the product that Gardein eventually made. And the guy said, oh, I don't think there's a market for this. And mm-hmm. I said, so why do you think, oh, we've done some consumer feedback and I don't think there's a market for it. Hmm. So, you know, a big company are risk adverse. And that's why in 2008, I decided I'm going to have to launch Gardein in retail because nobody wants to launch those products. And I know there's a market for it. And, you know, uh, your good friend, my good friend, Tao Roman, was helping me and we launched the brand on Oprah in, in 2009. I remember I, I was watching that and I remember being so impressed. You know, you mentioned Tal Ronan, who is a longtime friend of mine and a and a chef as well, who owns, now owns his own restaurant called Crossroads in L.A. But, you know, it's an amazing story. Like, I remember Tal from way back when he was like the IT guy at an animal welfare charity. And he was just like the guy who helped you fix your computers, you know, when when you had a computer problem. And then, you know, he ended up going to become a chef and look what he did with Gardein and, and now in, with so many more things as well since then. He's a very impressive guy. But so you had a, a wild ride. Oh, go on. Sorry. But Paul, I want to, you know, a lot of people look at entrepreneur like myself and it's, wow, the guy made a lot of money, you know. So I have to tell you that when I launched Gardein, I lost money for five years in a row. You know, I was self-financed and I was writing a check of $200,000 a month. Wow. To, to keep the, the business going for five years. But $200,000 a month for five years is a lot more than $5 million, right? No, it's, I, was, I, I was 15 million in the business. Wow. And I brought private equity. So, you know, you might say, oh, the guy made a lot of money. Or when they say, oh, Gardein's a lot of money. It takes a lot of risk. It takes a lot of belief. Because my break-even was $30 million at Gardein. Uh, because it's very complex, a lot of machinery, big capital expenditure. Uh, and, and it's really, when I decided, in 2007, when I saw that the Intel inside did not work, you know, I remember sitting in my room and said, I have to break the mold. I have to start all over. And I had like 12 million by that time. And, and I have to reinvent this brand, Gardein. And yeah. I have to go back in the marketplace and show, to, show that there's a market for this product. So, you know, it's easy to look back and look at those numbers and say, wow, this guy made a lot of money. But it's you have to really believe in what you're doing and and uh, take a lot of risk yeah so so speaking of money by the time you had the acquisition in 2014 for Gardein, what was the total of that acquisition by pinnacle well let me go back so in 2008 i you know i can put more money so i brought private equity mm. to help finance uh, Gardein, and they put quite a bit of money in but if you know you raise you you raise money, I said you know raising money. It's all about timing. I raised money in the worst time in the history of raising money in two thousand eight. In two thousand eight October, so wow. we had yeah. six 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 private equity that was looking at us to invest money. By January two thousand nine, there was only one, and so and they kind of like. THG saw a little bit of blood in the water and they believed in me, but they 
they squeeze a deal that that was a little bit more difficult to swallow, let's say. Mm. And so, yeah, the company sold for 175 million, and that's 154 into 14. But there was a good chunk of that the private equity took. Right. Uh, and, well, you know, Gardein, I, I could see why it would be worth that much. I mean, not, I when it came out, uh, I remember I certainly touted it as this revolutionary product. It was, you know, people today make the false claim. They say, well, plant-based meat was a kind of sleepy category until Beyond and Impossible came along. And they're the ones who really tried to mimic meat. Whereas Gardein was seeking to mimic meat yeah. in, in a way that was... Uh, very much and today is still a pretty dominant brand in the frozen space i mean when i, I go think it's a number two brand i think it's a number yeah. two brand I mean, yeah. when i when i go to walmart or to target and i look at the plant-based meat alternatives in the frozen section i don't see anything that has more shelf space than Gardein, which uh, of course was acquired by pinnacle and then later uh, by conagra so you know they must be doing a good job with it are you pleased with how that with what the brands that you started what their new parent companies have done if you look at eve's veggie cuisine you look at Gardein, these things that you birthed, are you pleased with their how they're well, being? Well, unfortunately, a lot ago, but I think YVC, I call it YVC. Unfortunately, a lot of those big brands they start cutting cost and they cut the recipe and they 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 they, they trim. And and my number one criteria it has to taste good. The product has to taste good and then be healthy and then sustainable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I would say not all the company think that way. So, and, but I, I just want to say that from Gardein from 2009 to 2014 for five years, we were responsible for 75% of the growth of the plant-based business in America. We were the engine that was growing the plant-based category. We were the first extrusion. And I know Beyond Meat said after we were the first one to launch wet extrusion, we were the first one to do that. We didn't have a burger. We had a burger, but nothing like impossible. But we were, so if these veggie cuisine was more deli meat, like, like sausages and hot dog, Gardein was more center of the plate item, like scalloping and a chicken nugget and filet of fish and all that kind of stuff. So we were sort of the second generation of meat alternative. And, and that's the downside of being with the private equity. They have a, we were the leader, like growing, like, but the private equity after five years, they say, okay, it's time, it's time to go. So you could say, yeah, we sold a lot of money, but look at Beyond Meat four years later, the valuation became billions of dollars. So. It's all relative. Right. So we were, we wanted to go and open a plant in the U.S. and really grow the grow the Gardein brand, but I didn't have the cash to buy them, and it was too early to go public. So therefore, you have to you have to exit for the shareholder, and they were they were a major shareholder, and they sort of uh, that's the reality of business. Understood. Understood. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that in the tech world, when uh, when people are not necessarily making actual physical things like food, but in the tech world where people are making apps and things like that, you have this expectation that there's going to be an exit within a few years. And what I notice about your two companies so far is, you know, these were a decade to a decade and a half 
of laboring away at these companies, often self-funding it and losing a lot of money before you finally had success. So first, you know, when, when you look at the mortality rates for startups, which are, you know, upwards of 90%, the fact that yeah. you, the fact that you had two successes in a row is really uh, incredible. And so first, congratulations on that. But most people would think, okay, well, I've done my part in the world. I've had two successful companies and you decided instead that you wanted to take a third entrepreneurial rodeo under your belt here with Conscious. And I want to chat about that because what was it that made you think, you know, I'm not going to just sit on a beach in Hawaii and enjoy my life that I want to do something else. You know, it's an interesting question because I've been asked that question a few times. I, you know, I own also with my wife a culinary school in Vancouver. We teach entrepreneurship and culinary to uh, international students. And so I was kind of semi-retired, involved in a lot of board and mentorship and it was really my team that called me and said, Eve, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad product on the marketplace. You know, there's nothing like drawing a business and being successful. It's being on a white water raft with a team of people. And you, you know, if you play sport, you have that team feeling that, you know, five plus five equals 20. You know, it's like it's there's a sensation of, of joy and achievement. And so uh, so uh, we decided to put the team back together. So when my like, CEO, uh, I hired her in 1997, my director, creative director, 1992, my director of production, 1985, my procurement. So we brought the team back together and we said, let's see what we could do. So we explored the world and... But what we, it's not, you know, I have a famous saying that I say when I give a talk. If to be successful in business, you have to be or the first or the best or different. So if you don't have the two, two out of three, you know, if you're just another chicken nugget right now or another mozzarella cheese plant based, what do you have? You know, I, and one of my ex employees working at one of the dairy free company and he said, we're the number fifth in the company. They're on, on the shelf. So we're, we're a commodity and the buyer knows that. So the buyer's trying to run you down. So, and then we zoom in seafood. I think we all know in our lifetime that all the fish is going to be farmed most probably. Like we know we're going to probably all be driven driving an electric car eventually. So we start to zoom in our thing. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you always look what's missing in your life. And what did the world need at the moment? And, you know, people say, sushi? So we put the team together and it took about six months. And I came up with the idea. I came up with a brand. And I said, I, I sent a text to everybody. I said, Houston, we have a liftoff. Uh, because the more I thought, the more I thought about it, I said, so I'm doing it. The reason I'm doing it is I love what I do. I think I'm good at what I do. And I, and because this time, for the first time, it can be an employee home. That everybody has their substantial share that if we go public or do something, it's going to be a life-changing event for them. Mm -hmm. 
you, you did just take a, a pretty large uh, investment, though, right? I mean, I, I read we that did. you did like a 19 million US dollar investment for the, for the company, which is a very sizable amount, especially at a time right now when VCs are n- not only reluctant to make investments of any kind, but especially in the alternative meat category, which has really been battered from a, a lack of VC interest at this moment for a variety of reasons. So how and why did you do it? I mean, it's a large amount of money to raise for an early stage company. And you're, you know, you're saying that you want maximal employee ownership, but it's a lot to take in from VCs. It is, it is, but uh, I can tell you that they, we have a good pool of share for the employees. That that any financial event we will have will be substantial for them. So the VC, it's not really VC. We have we have a grant from the Canadian government to create innovation of four million. I put a good chunk of money. We had a friend and family investment, and we had two, I would say, smart investments that are not looking for short-term, but long-term. Uh, one of the companies is Walter in Montreal, and there's a group, a family office, that invests in people like me. And if it's five years to get that investment or 10 years, and uh, you know, in business, I always say to young entrepreneurs, don't get stupid money. Get smart. The stupid money for me is five years. I don't bring value. I just want to triple my money, and that's it. Bring smart money that is here to invest in you and help you grow the business. So, you know, to finish my other point, it's interesting as an entrepreneur that, you know, I just finished building a house. I think my architect was 75. Uh, nobody asked the architect, why are you not retired? You know, I just, I a good friend of mine is a painter, nine years old. And people say, wow, your job is, your, your world is fantastic. Love your painting. They don't say to the artist, why don't you not in Hawaii, you know? And, but as an entrepreneur, you seem to have a, a timeline. Okay, you're 65, get out of here, go retire. And I'm more of an artist, I think, in that sense, an artist. I love it. Listen, I enjoy my life, but I also like building a brand and being with people and create good product and make a contribution in, in people's life. Right. So let's get into it then regarding conscious, because you're making a very different type of contribution than before. Like if you look at products like Gardein, which are pretty high technology products that are using a special kind of extrusion. Now you're basically using whole vegetables. You are putting pea protein in the product as well. But for the most part, your top ingredients are things like rice and and vegetables. I know that you acquired some of the technology from Ocean Hugger Foods, which was a a company started by Dave Benzikin that, that went under, but I think had some interesting technology that now you own. So what is it? Like, how are you turning whole vegetables into something that actually resembles fish without subjecting it to all the type of isolation, fractionation, extrusion, and other things that you do to plant proteins to make them taste like meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I, I think Paul, like my analogy with my friend, the painter, the artist, I think this is my best work. Okay. Because it, you know, and My wife and I travel all over the world. We love food. And I'm always, because of my chef background, what's the difference between a three-star, a two-star, a one-star, or a good restaurant? It's ingredient and the way you put the ingredient together. 
you know, two services doesn't use highly processed way to put the food on your table. It's just the way they assemble the food, the way they think about food. And so for us, it was, for me, it was going back to my root. How do we put clean ingredients together and then develop some know-how, like the rice is, is flat, flat frozen. Uh, we use uh, the tuna as uh, organic tomato. And we did use some of the ocean hunger know-how, but we quickly realized the way, the reason they went under is because the product was $15 a kilo to manufacture. And by the time you commercialize it, every sushi place was saying it's too expensive. So in business, it's, it's, it's important to have a good product, but it's important to have a good product that is affordable. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy to say that we're the first plant-based product that is not any more expensive than its counterpart. Interesting. Therefore, you know, if you have sushi roll at Whole Food or, or, or Sprout uh, Tuna, it's $8.99. That's what you're going to pay for a product. And this has been one of the big challenge for people who are flexitarian. They say, I want to eat more plant-based, but why is it twice the price? Why is it 25% more? We yeah. took that, we take that equation out. It's not any more expensive. It's better for you. It's better for the planet. And so, yeah, we've developed some unique technique to incorporate ingredient. And it's more like a, a baking or a, a culinary expertise that we brought into the conscious portfolio of product. Interesting. So let me ask you on, on the price parity issue, you know, some of these products are 25% more, but more often I see it at like two or three times more, like two to 300% more. And uh, there are a couple of times, uh, you know, I, I don't want to throw ice on the parade, but there are a couple of times where I've seen price parity reach. It's very rare. One of them, I was in the UK and I went to KFC and I saw that corn, Q-U-O-R-N, was yeah, being yeah. was being sold at KFC for the same price as it was six ninety nine or six ninety nine pounds I guess I don't know what that is in dollars but it was yeah. the same the same price as their chicken sandwich but it's very rare it's extremely rare that you see price parity um, between these products and and their incumbent counterparts and so I want to delve into that because you mentioned that the Ocean Hugger technology is fifteen dollars a kilo I don't know what higher end tuna costs, but I, I would be surprised if it was cheaper than that. I, I don't really know. I have no idea, but you know, that's, you know, like, what would that be like $7 a pound or so? Yeah. So which, no, which doesn't no, seem, uh, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. Yeah. But the, the problem with the, the ocean agar is that it was $15 a kilo, but at the end of the day, you only have about a 40% yield or 50% yield because there was a marinade inside, et cetera. And it was a big bag. And the product was well-liked by the sushi chef, but it was too expensive. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. tuna is about, selling tuna, about $13 a pound. Uh, but it was the usage. It was much more complicated than Got just it. the price. Right. Uh, so then, so if, if you get only half the yield, then, I mean, it's really like $30 a kilo. So, for example, we're launching uh, in about a couple of weeks to all 500 Whole food exclusively um a line of uh they're gonna have in a roll and we are the first we are the only one i read that makes the snow crab plant-based snow and so the next product you should try is our california roll because that's the big you know 50 percent of the roll sold in a, a sushi restaurant is california and and 90 percent of the california roll 
sold in a sushi place is made with fake crab that is Pollock and artificial flavor, artificial color, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so we're launching. So what for Whole Foods, for example, we are doing a tuna block that is seven inch by one and a half inch by one inch because they can cut it in a little square, put it in a row, and it's very easy to do that. So, you know, you couldn't, we can do this kind of stuff with ocean hydro uh, technology. And so this represents a tuna belly, basically, that that's what they do in a sushi restaurant. And so we're very excited to launch uh, nationwide with Whole Food exclusively. And so it's going to be dual. We're going to be in the frozen area and we're going to be in the fresh area with our brand conscious. Very, very cool. So, and this will be price competitive with the with the animal meat. Yeah, nice. Same price. Same price. Well, I, I can't wait to try it. That'll be that'll be a lot of fun for me to to go do that. You have mentioned before in in other interviews the protein issue, and so I'm wondering, like these products, because they're made from whole vegetables, they, they do have some pea protein added to them, but. Because they're made from whole vegetables, obviously they have less protein than fish. Do people do people care? That's my question. Is there is there people going out there buying sushi because they want the protein? Like, are they not going to buy this because it has less protein than conventional fish? Well, I don't answer that question last week to sort of an investment interview, and and I said, how, how many people go? First of all, we quite often have too much protein in our diet. In America. Uh, people too much protein, whatever protein it is, and nobody goes to a sushi restaurant thinking, "Okay, let me see how much protein am I having in that roll today." And actually, another one thing they should they should really look at is, you know, the average sushi roll in a restaurant contains a thousand milligrams of sodium, and ours is about a third of that. So we. We probably have half of the protein, but is it something we do uh, use pea protein uh, in our product? But we are, you know, we have a whole team of chefs and uh, food scientists that are working with different ingredients right now to see how we can increase the level of protein, because this is one of the questions. But we have vitamin B12, we have omega-3, you know, it's about putting a product together that has all the nutritional benefit without having the downside. Yeah. 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 Cool. So what, what in the snow crab, what is the vegetable? What, what is the product that is actually made from? The snow crab, we do use the main, pro, the main ingredient for the snow crab is conjac. Oh, cool. And, okay. and are you familiar with conjac? Conjac is a root vegetable from Asia that has, it's a dietary fine has tremendous binding potential and it's good for you and it's very very interesting the japanese have a whole way of using conjac but that's the main ingredient we use for it's a root vegetable yeah very cool yeah i i certainly am familiar with conjac but i'm glad for people who are listening who may not be that's great I, you know, one idea for this obviously is to use mycelium because it is a whole food that yes, also has yeah. a lot of protein. And I'll tell you the, my wife's favorite plant-based fish sticks, which I think are, I, I like the Guardian fishes fillets a lot. I think those are so good, but the corn, Q-U-O-R-N fish sticks, which sadly they discontinued in the U.S., but they still sell in Europe 
are so good and you know they're made from they're made from mycelium also but anyway it's a cool ingredient because you get this whole food that's unprocessed that also happens to have a meat-like texture with high protein content which is quite good we have mycelium in our lab right now in our research center we're trying to incorporate it in our product too so you know there's new ingredient coming uh on a regular basis in the plant-based world is is so vast you know, crown jack is an ingredient, for example, that is well used in Asia, not really well known in America. Uh, it's a beautiful ingredient, clean, and that's that's why we're using it. So you mentioned how vast the plant-based world is, and we talked earlier just briefly about some of the hard times that the plant-based meat world has fallen on lately. There's lots of companies that are going out of business. Lots of companies are doing major layoffs. Investors, by and large, uh, many of whom were tourists in this space, have now gone in to, to happier beaches to go to, like AI and so on. Why? Why do you think it is? like? Why is it that a few years ago, plant-based was the hottest way to attract investment and now it's quite cold. Well, Paul, as you know, you know, you know, the very good butcher in Canada that went they they yeah. they approached me to you know be part of the company four or five years ago. And I kind of told them that guys, you can't sell four sausages for nine dollars a pound, nine dollars, and expect to, you know, like conquer the world. The price has to be uh, competitive. And again, are you the first? Are you the best? Are you different? Well, there was five other companies in the U.S. who were doing the same kind of product. But yet they kind of jump on the bandwagon of the Beyond Meat that went public. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, investors are not that smart in that sense. A little bit, remember the dot-com? that you had an idea, you can get a million dollars for your idea. Mm-hmm. And it became like this a little bit for the plant-based protein, I think, that uh, anybody who had an idea or product, well, let's invest in them, that that's going to take over the world. You know, there was, another, there was a journalist uh, from a Canadian newspaper asked me, I said, so what's those plant-based is was just a fact? I said, no, plant-based is like any industry. That, uh, you know, in the turn of the century, there was something like 500 cars. Uh, manufacturer in North America. Well, a lot of them were not producing good cars. A lot of them were not profitable. A lot of them, therefore, you know, eventually there's only four or five manufacturers. The plant-based is the same way. It seems people, they, a lot of people go to plant-based because of the, they weren't changed over. And that's good. At the same time, eventually you have to, you have to have a profit. There's not enough time for investors to keep investing, investing, investing in a business without seeing a return. So a lot of a lot of business were mismanaged. And you have a, a big injection cat and suddenly open plant in different parts of the world and not looking at your margin. Everybody, a business needs a proper margin to function. And so it's a business also. An investor expect a return and it's not it's not only good to be a dreamer, you have to be an operator also. What is a proper margin? 30%, 40%? Like what to you is a proper margin for a successful food business? Yeah, I think a 40% is a, is an acceptable gross margin uh, for a sustainable business. You can't operate uh, with a 15, 20% gross margin. You don't have enough money to reinvest. Because, you know, you need to build the marketing to sustain the brand. 
uh, and you need to reinvest in your brand. So, so I think the plant base has a great future, but I think it's going to be, you need to have a, and that's why for me, it was important to bring my team back together mm-hmm. because I can trust them. I know what they can do. It's just not an idea. It has to be a sustainable idea. And you are in business yourself. You understand how difficult, as you mentioned earlier, 90% of business don't make it the first five years. It's so difficult to start a business. No wonder people don't want to start business. And it doesn't matter if you've done it once or twice or the third time. There's still many, many challenges uh, that are unforeseen. And uh, but I think the stronger one will survive and will thrive. But yeah. eventually, it's not like you, you need you need to have, you need to bring profit to be able to reinvest in a business. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. I was talking with one person who is a serial entrepreneur, and I asked him, you know, what was the what was the biggest trait that he had that he thought made him keep on doing this? He said, "Oh, I think hard headedness." I said, "Oh, tell me what you mean." He said, "Well, most people when they beat their head against a wall, people say, hey, stop beating your head against the wall. Your head's going to break.'" And I say, "I think the wall will break first. And so, <laughs> you know, that's like, you know, what it's like to, to, to try to do this. It's, it's so difficult. And I think a, a lot of people in the plant-based space, they saw the success that Beyond Meat had and they IPO'd at like, I think it was like a 30X multiple over their revenue, yeah. like, you know, com- completely. And same with Oatly, actually, which were, you know, totally anom- anomalous. And, you know, now they're, you know, trading at like 3X revenue. So these are, you know, really difficult lessons to learn for folks. But you have said, that conscious is going to be profitable within just a year, just yes. a year. So, how are you going to do that? Like you brought in this, uh, you brought in this outside investment. You put in investment of yourself. A lot of these companies, you know, they especially these highly funded companies, they take years, sometimes even before putting a product out on the market at all. But you're saying that within a year, conscious is going to be a, a profitable company. How so? Well, it's a question of volume. You need you need to a certain amount of volume to cover your overhead. And so we are growing very fast. We're going from 100 store four months ago to 4,000 store in about two months. So high growth, and that brings the production challenge, you know. You're in the manufacturing, you know what that means. You know, we're going from 100 case a day to 1,000 case a day to 2,000 case a day. And that's why you need a SWAT team like I have, that I can depend on. And we we have put a state-of-the-art facility with high-volume capacity. Mm. And once you reach a, a certain level of sales, then you have a break-even and you're profitable. And nice. we understand our margin, we understand our costs, and that is key, again, at cost accounting. The proper procurement person, the proper, you know, we, I mean, it took us two years to put conscious in the marketplace. Why? Because we did a lot of homework about what is it going to take back to profitability. And I think, you know, there's a lot of money to be invested in plant-based protein. A lot of people are on the sideline right now. Why? Because they say, show me your path to profitability. Because, you know, not making money for years, maybe this is a time of the past. And if you have good margin and you can show me path to profitability, it, it sure helps investors too that, you know, I've had a couple of home runs, you know, so they say, well, the guy knows what he's doing. Right. He takes some of the risk, 
away. But, you know, I think you mentioned a couple of companies, you know, Impossible and, and Beyond Meat. And the challenge of being public, the good thing is that once you go public, you have a lot of uh, cash injection and value is good so you can grow the business. But analysts are only a patient for so much. And a little bit, little bit what happened, I think, with Tesla, when my son who was 15, who called me, who, you know, chatting and said, Dad, I think you should short Tesla. This is my 15-year-old son is telling me to short Tesla. Every <laughs> analyst in the world was telling everybody to short Tesla. And I didn't short Tesla because I don't believe in this kind of stuff that to, to invent a bet in a negative way. And, and, and Tesla proved, proved the, the world wrong that they survive and, you know, they're the leader in the electrical car. So the analysts, you know, I had a journalist that says the fall of the, the plant base, it's over. It was a fact. And who said that was the owner of Light Life? And, and, you know, well, 90, 95% of his business is meat. Yeah. So it's, I said, be careful who's saying it because for him by saying that, he benefits his other business, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting point for sure. And I, 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 I have been following Tesla for some time, and I, you know, I've always thought that people who bet against Elon Musk are probably not in the wise place. He's proven time and time again that he's pretty resilient. In fact, I don't know how many people have been serially successful as plant-based meat entrepreneurs. I can't think of any who have done multiple successful exits in the space aside from you. But maybe you're like the Elon Musk of plant-based. Maybe you know Eve Potvin is the Elon Musk of plant-based here. Well, I think, you know, number one quality of entrepreneur and serial entrepreneur is perseverance. When everybody is going to, everybody's going to stop and say, we can't do it. Listen, my extrusion technology, I thought was going to spend, I, I bought a pilot technology and, and I thought it's going to cost two million to scale it up. It cost me eight million to scale it up. So you could say you're so stubborn that you're going to make it work. And most people quit along the way. They say, this is not going to work. Might as well cut your loss. So, yeah, I, I think I'm a very perseverant person. I believe in what I do. Uh, and it's it's painful sometimes. Uh, as you know, you've experienced pain. And uh, I think the non-mark said at one point, when he said at one point, he said, my friend, when they, they, they you know, because, I mean, this guy, does major business with the SpaceX and all that kind of stuff. And one of his friends said, starting a business like is like chewing on glass. You know, it's so painful. And so you have to believe in it and you have to yeah. uh you have to see the light at the end of time. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I have often said that if you want to know what it's like to try to run a business, just become very comfortable with rejection. Rejection from everybody, customers, investors, whatever it may be. <laughs> like just be prepared for rejection. Um, and eventually you can, you know, if you're fortunate and you do the right things, then you'll still prevail. You know, it's like the great philosopher uh, Rocky Balboa who said that in life, <laughs> 
you know, in life, it's not about how hard you can hit. It is about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That is how uh, how I view this thing. So let me ask you, you've, you've had a lot of success. I'm sure, as you noted, that, you know, you didn't do this alone, that many people have been involved with these successes with you. But were there any resources that were useful for you? Like any things that somebody's thinking, wow, I hope that I can be more like Eve Potvin. Were there any things that you read or heard or, or saw that you thought this was really useful for me in my journey? You know, I, I believe in mentorship. I Since day one, I had mentor. And I really encourage young entrepreneurs to find a mentor. I believe somebody with a little gray hair, somebody who's been there, somebody who's been through a few war and understand the journey of it. And, and you know, entrepreneurs quite often end up in a trench, fighting in a trench. And it's important to go on a mountain and look at the big picture so, but I, I'm an avid believer in, in learning. I mean, 25 years ago, Brian Tracy was, I was reading everything from Brian Tracy because about how to work in a business, how to, how to function in a business. But, you know, uh, every book about entrepreneur, you know, the Steve Jobs book, the, the, the Nike book, the book, I read all those books because there's so many lessons about what they've done, what they've done, their journey. And there are, there's a lot of similarity in entrepreneurial journey. And if most of the, like, that rejection that you mentioned is, is when people don't believe in you. People say, it's a, who's going to eat this stuff? You know, my, my, my brother said, what are you doing on this coast? There's no market for that. You know, and well, the first year I used Vegetable Cuisine was 235,000, second year 600, then a million, then two, then four, then eight, you know. So there's people like me that, that need it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, I'm, I'm going to link to some of the books that you mentioned in there, which certainly I, I really enjoyed as well, especially the the book by Nike's co-founder, Phil Knight, which is called uh, Shoe Dog, which is a, a really yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. It's a really good one. Talks about just how many near-death experiences the company had pr- prior to prior to finally succeeding. So finally, Eve, let me ask you, like, obviously, you've started now three companies. You've had these different chapters in your life. I imagine there are other ideas that you have that you hope somebody will do in the world that you're probably not going to get to because now you're working on conscious. So are there any ideas that you hope that some listener of this show will pursue themselves and start their own company doing? You know, Paul, I, I you know, I, I lecture at different university entrepreneurship program, and there's always a student that, that raises his arm and says, what is the next greatest idea on this department? And and I always say, well, you know, you should know because there's something in your life that's missing. And, you know, when I came up with the idea of soft like sushi and, and, and plant-based seafood, I started putting the dog together, you know, like there's 20,000 restaurants, uh, sushi restaurants in the U.S. There's uh, 5,000 poke bowl. We're running out of tuna, running out of this of a seafood. And why is this? Somebody say, why is there no frozen sushi? Well, our product has, I'm not sure the method that you use, but you could let it defrost for three hours ready to eat. You can put in the microwave for a minute, it's ready to eat. You put in hot water for eight minutes ready to eat. 
You can't do that with fish. You're going to have food poisoning. So it's about everybody has idea. Idea a diamond does. It's what you do with the idea. So I always tell the student, look at what's missing in your life and what you would like to see. And that's an idea possibly you should pursue. Interesting. Yeah, I, I always joke, you know, people who say, well, I have an idea, it's worth something. It's like, well, you know, I could say that I had an idea 20 years ago to have a supercomputer in my pocket, but that doesn't mean I invented the iPhone, right? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, there's a difference between having an idea and actually executing and, and it. And doing it. And exactly. That's the challenge. Yeah. yeah. is what you do with it. But everybody yeah. has good idea. Are you willing to act on your idea? Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm very grateful to you for acting on your ideas because I have been a consumer of yours for now about 30 years, actually. So, oh for that's yeah, why you look so long. That's why you look. Yeah, so long. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's all from eating Gardein and Eves, and then and, and, and today for the first time, and conscious today for the first time. And to answer your question, I microwaved it. Um, I, I did think about doing the warm water, but the idea of getting it in, in like just a minute as opposed to eight minutes was more attractive. Yeah, it's definitely convenient. Yeah, yeah. So pleasure talking to you, Paul. Eve, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Great to uh, chat here. Good luck with Conscious. And I look forward to seeing what happens with the company as you grow it into obviously a multi-million dollar business that's going to help turn the tide for the oceans here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.